Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. This is Allison Kaplan-Summer here with you in the studio this week. Later on in the show, we'll talk to Sally Abbott, a Palestinian activist, about the ongoing Bedouin protests that have been upending southern Israel and why they were sparked by tree planting. But first... Yossi Melman, a veteran journalist here at Haaretz. He writes on many topics, but most importantly on all things related to military intelligence. He's also written 10 books, mostly but not only about the world of spies. Hi, Yossi. Thanks for coming to the studio in these dangerous Omicron times. Thank you very much, Alison. It's my pleasure being with you here. So while we've all been obsessing about COVID and more recently about whether former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is going to take a plea bargain or not, you've been keeping your eye on the intelligence community and Iran. Last week, you wrote about a controversy involving an intriguing Iranian figure you call the chameleon. Tell us about Syed Hussein Musevian. We're used to putting Iranian figures into these clear categories, into boxes. They're either members of the regime or they're enemy activists fighting against it. But Musevian seems to have for a while successfully evaded this kind of categorization. Musevian is a classical product of the Islamic Revolution. He is very intelligent. He was part and parcel of the political diplomatic establishment of Iran. He served as his country's ambassador to Germany in the 90s. Then he became a scholar with a PhD from uh, Kent University in the UK. And for the last 15 years, almost 15 years, he's a scholar in residence at one of Princeton's uh, prestigious schools, uh, former Wilson School for International and Public Affairs. And most recently, he gave an interview to Iranian television in which he made mockery, basically, of uh, U.S. representatives to Iran, of the former uh, administration, of the Trump administration, Brian Hook. He kind of said in the interview that Brian Hook's wife cannot sleep at night. She's crying. She's troubled. She's traumatized. Why? Because of the threats against her husband. And the problem is that he smiled while he was saying it, right? That's what really got people angry. Gleefully, yes, he smiled. And basically, he was very pleased. He kind of winked uh, that he's very, very happy that this is the Iranian response to the killing of uh, Hassan Soleimani, General Soleimani, the head of the Al-Quds Force of the Revolutionary Guards, who was assassinated by the U.S. Special Forces, U.S. intelligence, with the help of Israel. And Musavian's interview was in connection to the two-year anniversary of the death of uh, General Soleimani. How does somebody with a past so associated with the Iranian regime, he was kicked out of Germany, right, when he was ambassador. How does someone like that stay respectable enough to be at Princeton for 12 years? Alison, it's a good question. It's not only that he was expelled from Germany. He was expelled from Germany as an ambassador after other four diplomats of his staff were declared persona non grata because a German court in 97 found them involved in the killing five years earlier in 1992 
of four Kurdish-Iranian dissidents. That was an operation of the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence, Moiz, Mo Intelligence and Security, and he was the, the ambassador there. And no doubt that he had known about the planning, or at least he knew that they who killed them. Ten years later, he is a welcome at Princeton University as a scholar, while he is basically a propagandist. He is a agent of the regime, influence agent of the regime. He writes op-ed pieces in the New York Times, and he preaches the party politics of Iran. But what gets him in trouble ultimately is smiling in a documentary. So that's interesting. Former United States Senator Joe Lieberman have called for Princeton to dismiss him. So do you think they'll do it? Lieberman is president of an organization called United Against Nuclear Iran, Yuani, which, by the way, Israeli former chief of Mossad, Tamir Pardo, is a member of the group. It's a very respectable group of former U.S. diplomats, spies, and as well as British and West European officials. They are acting uh, against Iran turning into a nuclear power, public campaign against nuclear Iran. They issue a letter to the president of Princeton calling to fire Musavian. So far, Princeton uh, has not responded. In my piece, I approach Princeton University and ask for comment. They didn't answer. Shocking, huh? <laughs> okay, so while we're talking about Iran, also last week, a crazy story broke. Five Iranian-born Israelis, immigrants to Israel from Iran, were indicted for spying for Iran. And our Haaretz commentator, Amos Harel, noted that the indictments read like a mix of serious crime and comedy. Four of them were women. One of them was a husband who was uh, accused of helping his wife. And so they meet a guy on social media who says he's a young Jew from Tehran. They befriend him and he tries to start dispatching them on a range of intelligence missions, some of which are just weird. He wants one of them to take photos of a backbench Knesset member getting a massage. He wants one to get on the TV series Tehran. He's asking them to photograph random places, City Hall in Beit Shemesh, the local National Insurance Institute branch. So what does all this tell us about the state of Iranian intelligence in Israel? Should it make us feel good if this is the best that they can do? Or is this much more serious than the Israeli media is portraying it to be? Unlike my colleague Amos Arel, I don't take it lightly. Of course, the ring of five were small cogs in, and they didn't have any serious access to secrets. But we have to see it in a broader range, in a broader perspective. Iran has been trying for the last 30 plus years to penetrate Israel via different ways and means. They recruit agents, they conduct uh, cyber warfare against Israel, and they try to extend, enlarge the reservoir of potential agents which they can recruit. So these four women who did not have an access to secrets were sent on a mission to recruit others, to lead them to more significant uh, potential agents. For example, these women tried to recruit, as they had been instructed by their operator, by this Iranian intelligence officer who posed as an Iranian Jew, they tried to recruit their sons 
in order to infiltrate the most prestigious units of IDF and the Israeli military intelligence, like Unit 8200. So I think we see Iranian determination to infiltrate Israel. In the past, they recruited and ran a former Israeli member of parliament and minister, Gonen Segev, who is now spending seventh year in jail. He was arrested in a sting operation in Africa by the Israeli Mossad and the Shin Bet. So Iran is in the game of espionage and is uh, drawing lessons from its past failures. This incident maybe was a failure and even some people think that it's a joke. But if you put it in a broader perspective, you will see that they will continue to operate in order to get information about Israel, about Israelis, maybe to kidnap them, about targets in Israel from the nuclear reactor to any strategic target in Israel. So back to our own intelligence services for a minute, which you're an expert in. I'm old enough to remember when your book, Every Spy a Prince, came out in 1989. And it was such a huge deal back then that a journalist was writing about what goes on behind the scenes in the Mossad and the Shin Bet. We didn't know anything about these people. We didn't know their names. We referred to them by their initials. And you were giving us a peek behind the curtain. And I couldn't help thinking about how much times have changed when I read your story in Haaretz. Israel's military and intelligence elite has a terrible vice, blabbing. It was spurred by the former head of IDF intelligence department, General Tamir Heyman, kind of bragging that Israel uh, took part in the Soleimani assassination. Can you talk through how things have changed over these past three decades? Why is what was once hush-hush now, these front page headlines, is it a function of the desire of these officials to aspire to a career in politics, their need to show off? Well, I think that Israel went from one extreme to another. While in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s, there was too much secrecy, too heavy secrecy was enveloping the Israeli society. We had a very strict, strong censorship, which did not allow journalists to publish their stories about intelligence or military affairs. The courts have been cooperating with the military establishment, with the security establishment. That was in the past, and I think it was exaggerated by the establishment. Since then, things have changed. I'm all in favor of the change. I think Israel, as a pretending to be a democracy, should be much more open society. But with being more open, it comes with the territory. It's also the military and the security personnel are talking and talking and talking and revealing secrets, which are endangering the national interest of Israel. Usually, Alison, journalists are accused of revealing secrets, exposing stories which would uh, damage the interest of Israel. What we see now is that politicians and security officials, including heads of services, are talking all the time and they are revealing the secrets. Do you feel like former Prime Minister Netanyahu and former Mossad chief Yossi Cohen kind of changed the rules of the game when they gave these big press conferences? Look what we got out of Iran, you know, that things uh, pivoted uh, because of these two figures? Yes, Yes, Yossi Cohen, with the backing of Prime Minister Netanyahu, changed the rules of engagement, changed the rules of the game, mostly for their own personal and political interests. It had nothing to do with the nationals' interests. For their ego, for their public relations, the Yossi Cohen is a good example of how Israel has gone too far 
in revealing secrets for personal or political uh, interest and benefits. And uh, I think it's wrong because the enemy, they are listening. I'm in favor of an open society and, and discussions and discourse, and it's good for the public interest. But sometimes these bosses are using information as their private uh, collection. So finally, Yossi, you write about all kinds of uh, military issues, not only the intelligence, but back to the Iran issue for a moment. You wrote a really interesting analysis recently in which you said, quote, the declarations by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, and IDF Chief of Staff Aviv Kochavi about Israel's readiness for a military strike on Iran are empty and pointless rhetoric, as they well know. They are playing pretend. Basically, you said that Israel doesn't have a lot of good options, given that Iran seems to be playing for time at the negotiating table in uh, Vienna while it increases its nuclear capabilities. The Biden administration doesn't really seem interested in playing hardball with Iran. And you call for an kind of an out of the box, bold and creative move. Can you tell us what your suggestion is? I'm not saying that Israel doesn't have options. They do have military options, but not the capabilities to conduct a military strike against Iranian uh, nuclear installations. The Iranians know, the Israeli bosses know, what are the limits of the Israeli Air Force capabilities. Israel should continue to operate against Iran's efforts to establish itself as a nuclear state or threshold nuclear state, but secretly with clandestine operations, basically to continue what Israel has been doing for the last decade or more. And even if Israel is considering military strike, which I think it's not in the cards, still don't talk about it. It's better to be silent and to act and not to talk and talk and talk. And while you are talking about uh, striking Iran, the Iranians know the truth, the Americans know the truth, and these Israeli empty words are aimed more for the domestic consumption for political reasons rather than to frighten the Iranians or to influence the Americans to do something. The Americans know what their interests are. I mean, we may not agree with them, with what they are leading the talks in Vienna, but this is the reality and it's better to work with the Biden administration hand in hand to cooperate, to collaborate, to exchange ideas, and even if, if needed, to go into the field with in joint operations against Iran. But don't talk about it. I think the Iranians and the Americans are heading to have some sort of a deal. Maybe it not be very beneficial for Israel. It's not, it won't be the ideal deal, but any deal is better than a military strike. Well, if such a deal happens, we'll have you uh, back on to analyze it. Yossi, thank you so much. Listeners, you can read all about what we've discussed in uh, Yossi's articles on Haaretz.com. And you can also take a deep dive behind the scenes of Israeli intelligence in Yossi's books as well. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Alison. It's my pleasure. Hi, and welcome back. Hello to Sally Abed, who is a member of the national leadership at Standing Together, the largest Arab-Jewish grassroots organization in Israel, who also has a podcast sideline going. Sally's been a co-host on The Promise Podcast and is also a co-host of Groundwork, a podcast about Palestinian and Jewish Israelis working together for change. Hey, Sally, thanks for being here. Thank you for the invitation. 
For about two weeks, the Jewish National Fund was preparing the ground for a forestation plan in the Negev on land that is used by Bedouin farmers. It's kind of an annual thing ahead of the uh, Jewish holiday of Tubishvat, which involves uh, tree planting. And Last week, for about three days, we had hundreds of police escorting the JNF workers, getting ready for the plan. A protest tent was erected on the site, and that was demolished by the JNF uh, tractors. But the story didn't really hit the headlines until police officers were wounded during protests against the forestation. Police were saying there were reports of stones being thrown at buses and trains. 18 people were arrested, including teenagers at first, more later on. And then a Haaretz reporter was assaulted and his car set on fire as he was covering all this. So can you explain the background for all these clashes? Tell us about this land and why the JNF plans are being protested so vigorously. It's about a lot more than trees, right? It really isn't about trees at all. <laughs> <laughs> actually, this really is not new developments. This plan is actually has started in 2020, in 2020, about a year and a half ago. So this is not new development. This plan has really has started already. There are many reasons why it escalated now, but this particular land of Arab al-Atrash or the family that is called al-Atrash is because it's a land they are farming. It's uh, a source of their livelihood. They actually farm wheat in this land, which is why the issue escalated, among other things that we will talk about later. But really, this policy of Alavau, in English, there is a word for everything, but it's called greenwashing <laughs> or, you know, plantation, is really a policy that has been happening since 48 for all and native Palestinians uh, all throughout Israel and not necessarily there where you basically the policy of, you know, concentrate as many Palestinians in as little land as possible. So they did that in the Negev in the 50s. They actually created, they built nine Bedouin towns and they concentrated many of the clans or the towns or what we call them now villages, unrecognized villages, and they put them all together in clusters. Rahat is the largest Bedouin town that you could uh, really see many, many different towns that they put together in one area. At the moment, you have 11 Bedouin towns that are recognized by the state of Israel, which leaves 35 unrecognized villages. Now, these villages can be a couple of thousands and they could be much larger. So when, when we say village, it's really like a cluster of people living. And the reason, the problem with these lands is the fact that how Israel recognized ownership of the land. And that's what's unique about the Bedouin community, unlike other communities like in the Galilee, in the north or in the center of Israel, where we had Tabu, which is basically what you would have the system of land ownership was recognized by the state. Obviously, not all of it. There were other policies to confiscate that land. But still, you could see that a lot of Palestinians in the north still own land privately due to that, to the fact that they had Tabu. Whereas in the Negev, you know, these Bedouins actually didn't have, they didn't participate in that kind of system. They didn't register their land. So they just cultivated it for decades without actually registering it, which is why for years now they have been having a struggle for recognizing their lands. Now that comes in 2000, actually, they had came to some kind of agreement, as I said, for the villages that were recognized. But now more than 100,000 Bedouins are currently living in unrecognized villages, which means they barely have any water, electricity. They don't have, you know, any public services, schools, 
medical centers, a lot of it comes from private NGOs and not from the government, not from public services. So this is not new development. This is really something and the eruption that happened this week, it really is just a reaction to continuous oppression. You know, these villages are actually all of them consistently are one of the poorest communities in Israel, not one of the poorest, they are actually the poorest <laughs> community in Israel, you know, socioeconomically, education-wise. It really wasn't something that is a reaction to something new, but rather just, you know, a trigger. So I think we've established it's not about the trees. <laughs> it's not about the trees. Actually, you know what's interesting? Yeah. <laughs> that the um, Society for the Protection of Nature, they actually, in parallel to the Al-Atrash uh, family's uh, dispute, mm -hmm. which was actually rejected and then revoked, they actually simultaneously had a petition or had an urgent petition with the high court against the planting because they said that it included earthworks that will irreversibly damage the habitat mm -hmm. in there. So it actually was bad <laughs> for the environment <laughs> right. to plant in these lands and not just in that uh, particular land in Al-Atrash, but generally in that plan that I said that started in 2020. So when I was watching the coverage of the protests and the violence on television, and they were kind of putting the older Bedouin leaders on the spot saying, you know, calm things down and why through violence and let's do this calmly. At a certain point, they were saying, it's the youth, we can't control the Bedouin uh, youth. So, you know, it led me to think about the generation gap and you're young. So I'll ask you, you must know uh, younger uh, Bedouins. What do you make of that? And what do you make of Israeli pundits who kept talking about a Palestinianization of Bedouin, especially younger Bedouin? Absolutely. In the Promise podcast, we always talk about how our generation has really gone through a lot, like a lot of politicization of the Palestinian identity. You also have Islamization, especially in the Negev, which is another issue. And we will talk about it later when it comes to Ram. But these kids are extremely marginalized and these kids are pissed. <laughs> They're angry. If you really look at the Israeli media in general throughout the years, and especially now when it happens, they really talk about the bidding communities as like, they're like the most unwanted, like untouchable, you know, like savages. They're Bedouins, you know, they're clans. They don't even have a home. And the organized crime in the Bedouin communities is insane. And it's completely, completely, you know, overlooked by the police. There re really is a lot happening and they're enduring a lot as a society. 25% almost of these kids uh, in these communities don't even finish high school compared to like 12% in the Arab Palestinian society, 6% in the Jewish society. They're going through a lot. And I don't think the Palestinization, well, for me, that's something that is, it, it has to be positive for in, in order for it to actually work mm -hmm. in the Israeli society. And I don't think that's what's happening there. I really think that they feel very left out. And it really does explain the violence. It does not justify the brutality of the police, but it does um, really explain the violence that happened there. So let's talk about Ram. We'll go to uh, to politics. Ram is how we refer to the United Arab List, which is led by uh, Mansour Abbas, who is uh, the coalition partner in our current government, uh, led by Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. So Mansour Abbas goes to the south. Um, he condemns the tree planting and he goes as far as to threaten to stop voting with the government on everything um, if these plantings continue. And everyone's calling it, you know, the biggest coalition crisis so far. The 
closest that the Bennett government has come to falling. Then a couple days later uh, on Wednesday, a compromise emerges. It's uh, hammered out between Ram and uh, Yeshatid, another partner in the government who's in charge of the National Authority uh, for the Negev. And the compromise says that the planting will be suspended until arrangements can be reached, which will be negotiated within the coalition. So, you know, Abbas sort of uh, spun it as, look at the influence I had. And the right wing side of the Bennett government is saying, well, we were done planting anyway. You know, it was supposed to stop anyway. And so it's no big deal. So the Bedouin community is Abbas's base. They've, uh, you know, without without their votes, he can't uh, continue to have the level of power that he has. Do you think he's going to get any credit for stopping this or he just looks bad because, you know, the planting happened in the first place on his watch? Well, he will probably get credit, even though I think the credit should go for the people there. Because they are the ones who voted him in. They are his base, as you said. I think like 80% of his like votes are from the Naqab, from the Negev. Right. And that's predominantly Bedouin community. I hope that he will be able, because of this connection and because of his dependency on this community, that he will actually, that would be his red line. We saw that he doesn't have many, unfortunately, I am very critical of Mansour Abbas. Maybe the listeners don't know that. Um, and apparently that's his red line because that's his base. And I really hope that it will come to their advantage, even if it's politics, even if it's not about to just him ideologically actually thinking so. I think that we will probably see a lot of pressure from his side to actually stop this from happening, even if it's symbolic, this particular incident of this land. This is stopping something that is actively taking land and surrounding Bedouin communities so they don't expand and it actually prevents them from any possibility of being recognized in the future. Like these things are very calculated in order for, you know, in the future, you know, a couple of decades from now, they will say like, it's actually impossible to have like a recognized township in these areas exactly because of these confiscations and plantations and whatnot. So we are preventing an active aggressive policy of depopulation or whatever you want to call it or you know limitation of population but that doesn't necessarily mean anything about advancing us towards uh, recognizing these villages and actually recognizing their struggles for decades to actually receive the very 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 basic so you don't see Abbas losing any Bedouin support over what just happened or receiving more pressure to get out of this government or it working to the advantage of the joint list of Ahmed Oda, his uh, rival for votes in the Arab community. In this context, yeah. I think if he's able to receive a small but symbolic win, he will probably maintain the votes. It doesn't mean I'm optimistic about him advancing it any further, as I said. But I do see how he gets a symbolic small win that could actually help him maintain the, his legitimacy in the South. Mm -hmm. Regarding the joint list, that's a whole other story. That <laughs> we should have another podcast about that and what's happening with Netanyahu now. But that's that's another story. Yeah, but um, I mean, uh, I mean, Oda wasn't super high profile on this leader of the joint list. Uh, you know, he didn't really use it as a way to attack Abbas. Mm -hmm. No, Ayman Oda, he is in a very... Um, a particular situation now where he really understands that Mansour Abbas is seen as someone who is a leader there. He is a legitimate leader. There is many polls that show how people actually support him being in the government and people are really hopeful that he will advance things. So I don't think Ayman Audi wants to be in a position to actually attack that while he also wants just to show his proactive support for the case. 
even though he really has no no political interest let's say it that way that's so cynical to talk about it like that right because it should be more uh, it's hard to talk about politics and, and not get cynical and, right yeah 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 i think ayman Ode is just there to show his support and also just maintain his legitimacy as a leader of the arab palestinian community because the naqab the negev is is seen as a huge part that is it's the bleeding community of the Arab Palestinians in Israel. It's very symbolic. And I think all of them are really see it that way. Like you said, we could do a whole other podcast on it. <laughs> but for now, Sally Abed from Standing Together, thank you so much for coming on Haaretz Weekly. Listeners can listen to Sally on the Groundwork podcast and on the Promise podcast and can dive deeper into the coverage of what's playing out in the Negev now on Haaretz.com. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks to our producer, Amir Faktor, and to our editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. See you all next week, and until then, shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>